Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. this episode, I speak with Dr. Nikki Kasumi Clements. Nikki is the Watt J. and Lily G. Jackson Associate Professor of Religion at Rice University. Dr. Clements is an ethicist working on how humans can shape their lives through daily practices and come to critique the social, political, cultural, economic, and ecological factors that render humans differentially vulnerable to structural violence. Clements' first monograph, Sites of the Ascetic Self, 2020, approaches these questions through the ethics of John Cassian, the late ancient ascetic who views, whose views of human ability contributed to new forms of life in a shifting empire. Between 1977 and 1984, philosopher Michel Foucault became particularly interested in Cassian as part of the genealogy of the desiring subject, and Seitz reconsiders these readings through Cassian's attention to embodied, affective, and interrelational practices. Clement's research for her second monograph, Foucault the Confessor, engages Foucault's fascination with Christianity and ethics through both his published works and at the archives in France. The posthumous publication of History of Sexuality, Volume 4, 2018, translated as Confessions of the Flesh in 2021, confirms the extent of his engagement with early Christianity in ancient sexual ethics as an art of living. 
It also confirms just how important the study of religion is for engaging Foucault's work on subjection alongside the possibilities for self-formation and challenges to structures of domination. Influenced by her mentors at Brown University, Ph.D. 2014, Harvard Divinity School, MTS 2007, and Sarah Lawrence College, B.A. 2003, as well as her students at Rice, Clement's teaching and service share her research attention to recognizing human ability and critiquing structural disparities. In this episode, we explore a variety of topics, including Michel Foucault and some of the exciting new findings from the archives, ancient philosophical and spiritual self-care practices, why Christianity, especially St. Augustine, routed sexuality and subjectivity so closely together, and the modern implications of that, how to think about the cultivation of individual autonomy while also participating in collective spaces of resistance, why modern figures like Jordan Peterson, while they have some good things to say, can also be very dangerous, and how men can think about their complicity in systems of oppression while also listening to themselves and others as a means of self-care and political engagement. If you want to connect with Dr. Clements, if you want to reach out to her, you can go to her website at www.nikkiclements, that's N-I-K-I-C-L-E-M-E-N-T-S.com. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. It was one of the most fascinating ones for me. I learned a bunch. I'm going to go back and try to read all of her work because it really speaks to the work that I do with men. It speaks to my own soul and the ways that I want to grow as a man at that embodied, affective, and interrelational level. Guys, I hope that you're challenged and encouraged by this conversation. And as always, don't just listen to the podcast, but continue the conversation with someone that's important to you, whether that's a therapist, a pastor, a friend, a spouse. Get out there and connect with others. So, Nikki, thank you so much for being a guest on Therapy for Guys. I know that our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Jonathan Tran, shout out to you, Jonathan, um, sort of connected us. And I, I recently interviewed him on an episode, and we were talking about Foucault and Christianity and some of the ethical implications of his work. And he told me that I needed to definitely reach out to you and connect because, you know, you're one of the leaders in the field. And... uh 
But when he said your name, it sounded familiar. And then I went back and uh, realized you'd have done an episode with John Price on the Sacred Speaks, who I'm going to have on the on the podcast. So it's just some interesting connections. It's also cosmically connected as well as socially. Yes. It's really no, I like that. Yeah, third episode, I think, for, for John's series that he's doing a, a reboot to. So yes. it'll be interesting to see where these perspective podcasts go. Yeah, absolutely. So would you would you mind just kind of giving the listeners a sense of who you are, you know, what you're up to in terms of scholarship and, you know, any any personal details that that you might share with us? Sure, tall order, but uh, <laughs> right. Where do you start? And then uh, we can work backwards if that's relevant. Uh, so I'm a professor at Rice University. I was recently tenured, so that means I'm an associate professor. I'm in my ninth year. Hey, congratulations! Uh, thank you, but also in Houston. So Houston has really become home for my partner and I. We really love the space, the community, and the people. Right above mm. all, this is a place where collectives make things happen. There's so many resources, and it's this question of how do you expose certain injustices? How do you find your people? How do you work together? But there's so much energy here. Yeah, well said. So it's very different than some of the other cities I've lived in, notably New York, Boston. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, so I've gone the uh, West Coast, East Coast, Third Coast yeah. route. And uh, I have to say that this is a place where you can really see the future unfold in terms of diverse forms of life diverse forms of political mobilization, collective action, and uh, really it's my students who show me that. I really love uh, my job at Rice, as well as the ongoing research that I'm doing. You mentioned Jonathan Tran's work on Foucault, and of course he was one of the original people writing on Foucault and theology. I'm writing on Foucault in his last 10 years. Mm. So Foucault dies in 1984 of AIDS as a gay man in France at a time when even if there were no legal sanctions, there were still a lot of social stigmas against being gay, against being um, a kind of non-conforming subject mm. or the dangerous uh, the dangerous individual that, uh, that Nietzsche as well as Foucault like to talk about. So with Foucault himself, I'm really drawn to his questions how does he come to this question of how do we not only recognize how we're shaped by all these normalizing forms, right? How are we told to be certain kinds of subjects and students and producers and consumers? Mm. But also over the last 10 years of his life, he realizes he's over-theorized power and he wants to figure out how do we also resist? Mm. How do we also shape new ways of life? And how do we open up the possibilities for others to have the opportunity to do that as well? So it's a self-change in relation to social change dialectic that I think is so important and that what he's really developing. So that's what I'm doing both within my own research through his published works, but also I've been spending as much time as possible in his archives in Paris. Yeah. Could you where, speak to that? I, I didn't know if there were any sort of sanctions against talking about some of that, or if you could talk about that, because that sounds so interesting. It's so fascinating. I'm so lucky in so many ways. This is really my best life. So, uh, <laughs> 2013, the uh, Foucault estate sold his uh, archives to the Bibliothèque Nationale of France. And this is in part because uh, France had declared Foucault's archives a national treasure, which meant oh, wow. that they could be sold elsewhere, i.e. an American university that would pay outright, outrageous sums for it. Oh, I bet. So this is not only an amazing um, resource for France to have Foucault's work. Uh, I think similar things are happening with Guy Debord and his archives around the same time. So it was this movement by the French government to really protect and preserve their 
their intellectual and cultural histories. Wow. So it's in this process of being inventoried and it's accessible with the permission of the Foucault estate, which is largely run by Foucault's nephew, Henri Paul Foucault. Mm. And one goes to the same reading room. My Monsieur Foucault has to go to the same reading room as everyone else. It's now publicly accessible in uh, principle, if not in uh, the everyday practice of the estate. So I've been going through uh, so many of the the boxes. There are about 110 boxes in this one archive that I've really been training my eye on. And they're kind of uh, (laughs) sprawling. They're sprawling conceptually. They're sprawling temporally. So it's kind of detective work to figure out what Foucault's writing when, how is he changing his archive? How is he changing his mind? How is he really willing to take up this practice of being a researcher and to be changed by his own materials mm. and to be changed by this question, not of how are we dominated, but how can we also be self-shaping? Wow. Well said. I love that. And, and some exciting discoveries and it sounds like it's just exciting work being in the archives and figuring all that out. I love that. Because you see his handwriting and his handwriting is so difficult to decipher. Mm. But at the end, you know, just transcribing chapters and chapters and chapters that he had drafted of all these other volumes on uh, Christians in the medieval period, but also on the uh, way in which uh, you know, the, the fight against children's masturbation was unfolding in relation to what he was calling his other volume, volume five in history of sexuality. It was called uh, Les Perverts, like perverts. Mm. but it was an extension of his work on Hercule Barbin, the Alexina B. And so Foucault has this entire uh, treatment of what he was calling hermaphrodites at this time, but it's really about transgender individuals who are being exposed in the 19th century for not conforming to the social scripts and what that has to say about the medicalization of the subject, what it has to say about the gender exclusion of the subject, and what that has to all say about how we are constrained into these certain subject positions today. And so how do we then start to think about gender more expansively, uh, sexual orientation more expansively, the possibilities for um, moving beyond the, the anti-Black and racist societies within which we're situated. Wow. These are all things that he was thinking through and to be able to see him unfolding this on the page. It's uh, so much humility to be in the presence of someone who's so great, but also there's so much humility on his part to recognize that he hasn't even scratched the surface of what we can know and what we can do. Wow, man. Gosh, I wish I could have been your student, <laughs> but I guess in some ways I am now. <laughs> Colleagues for life. <laughs> also, uh, if you want a research opportunity, I just, uh, I, I need some people to come to, to, to Paris with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> funding, so if you have any good funding sources. Okay, so. got you. I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> um, so I, I thought, Maybe we could sort of launch a conversation with a line from the conclusion of, I think it's your latest essay in the Journal of the Academy of Religion. Is, yeah, am I getting that right? Okay. And um, because I thought this line just really encapsulates the argument of the, of the paper and, and gets at some of the stuff you were just talking about in, in a really concise way. And then maybe we can just kind of unpack some of the elements of, of the quote, if, if that works for you. Absolutely. Okay. And, and one, one thing I'll say too, is, you know, the, the sort of line of the, of the podcast is that I'm trying to explore issues that a lot of modern men stay silent about, but, but it's not exclusively a podcast for men. There, there are women and trans individuals who listen to it, 
but there is kind of that masculinity bent, but, but hopefully it's something that's being critiqued and looked at in different ways. And I'm kind of hoping you can help me do that through a kind of a Foucauldian lens as well. Okay. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here, here's what you wrote in your article, uh, Foucault's Christianities in, in the conclusion. There is ethical promise in Foucault's readings of ancient Christian texts, and perhaps he would have been less attentive to the dangerous flesh and more to the ethical force of the art of living, were he able to return to his proposed inquiry and perhaps even integrate it with the violent realities of modern biopolitics. So really well said. I think it captures the essay. And so I kind of thought we could break it down. What, what do you mean by his ethical promise? Maybe that, that could be something we start with. Yeah, that's a great question that corresponds to a bit of the narrative I started to unfold, which is how over his last 10 years, between 74 and 84, does Foucault recognize that he is a, you know, focused too much, as he says, on the work of domination and power, mm. and he becomes more and more interested in the practices of the self, the technologies of the self. And in the practices of the self, this is the subject who's already been shaped by these other forms of power and knowledge and control. We are all disciplined subjects. There's no outside. There's no originary subject that we can get back to. Mm. There is no kind of Kantian autonomous will that we can rely upon. Instead, we're already subject. But that doesn't mean that we don't have options for shaping our lives. Mm. And this promise is one where we take up all the ways in which we're shaped. We subject it to a critical I, we come to see what is what is contingent and how we've been shaped. And we are able then to start thinking through how to live differently. What is it that doesn't conform to the ways in which certain gender scripts, for example, have enforced a certain kind of masculinist versus feminist reading sure. of uh, our gender and uh, a binary? So how is it that we can see how we're shaped, expose some of the mechanisms as contingent instead of necessary, and therefore work to figure out how is it that we want to live? How do we want to restylize our lives? This is a term that Foucault uses, the kind of aesthetics of existence, mm. the tibiu in Greek, it's the art of living. And he refers to the language of art and the aesthetics of existence in part because it hasn't been overdetermined in advance. Instead, there are new ways to shape your life. Mm. There are new ways to stylize it. There are new ways to become yourself that uh, isn't about you know revealing who you've been truly, but instead showing that you can constitute yourself, your life, even when it shapes against social norms, even when other people don't understand, even when it causes, let's say, your family pain mm. to know that you're you know queer as an individual, right. when you don't have the right kinds of uh, you know professional aspirations in a more mundane sense or whatever way it is that you feel like you're kind of misaligned with the order of things. Mm. It means that you need your people to see you as you are. You need to be able to have the spaces and the practices. This is what I was arguing in my, my, my first book on John Cashin, which, which might be interesting. Yes. Oh, I, I'm going to get it. And, and uh, I mean, if you'd be open, maybe we could have another conversation about him <laughs> at some point. I think that yeah, because there's so much that is going on in the in the caching book that. So please do speak about caching as well. Yeah, I mean they're 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 all in conversations. Foucault becomes very obsessed with caching as this fourth fifth century Gallic man 
you know, so we have these two homosexual Gaelic men who I've been obsessed with for 20 years for one reason (laughs) or another. Like, it's it's just so full of very queer men that um, I find it very funny to to think about coming on a podcast that's therapy for guys, and yet uh, your invitation to kind of open up the the way in which we're thinking what this means. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a feminist. I'm a queer person. I'm a, a whole bunch of things, but I also spend most of my time talking and living in the worlds of uh, these masculine subjectivities. Gotcha. And I feel like I'm a I'm a bad I'm a bad feminist from that perspective. But it's because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what hey, is we it need the bad feminists. Yeah. I'm a good political feminist. I'm a bad intellectual one. There you go. <laughs> but I do use, uh, I mean, my, my primary interlocutors and theoretical uh, individuals are people like Judith Butler. Within my own fields, there are so many uh, amazing feminist and gender scholars. So it's not that um, it's exclusively about these guys, but the foregrounding of these men who are queer in history, mm. whether it's the 4th century or the 20th century, Cashin and Foucault, they're both figuring out what is it to live in a world that's collapsing? Mm. What is it to live in a world that has uh, reinforced certain kinds of social scripts that one doesn't conform to? Yes. What is it to change the ways of life at the end of empire? Right? We have this in the fall of the Roman Empire. We have this at the collapse of whatever kind of myth of American imperialism we're dealing with right now and the, the perils of financial capitalism. We have this sense of social breakdown. And the question is, what can we build together in the midst of that? As income disparities reinforce certain hierarchies of domination, how do we expose those mechanisms? Mm. Like Crystal's unionizing with Amazon. I mean, we have so many people who are out there doing this work on the day-to-day. And the ways within which change happens is not through individuals, but through collectives. Yes. But how do you have collectives unless it's through individuals who are also committing to these daily practices? And the daily practices of becoming who you want to be in relation to others in ways that is difficult. It has challenges. It has mental challenges. It has physiological ones. And it's this really uncomfortable process of coming to be a person, mm. to be a self that you are working on day to day. And it's in that sense that it's an art of living because it's one of constant forging. It's one that requires technique and practice. And yet that will continuously be in process because there's no end point. Instead, we're always in the process of reshaping and making ourselves and if we're able to do that in collaboration with others who can support us through the times that we're down and we support them through times in which we feel integrated, I feel like that's part of the, the great promise of what Cashin and Foucault are both up to in thinking about how do you redescribe new ways of living gotcha. in particularly queer communities, but also thinking about how do you use this as a challenge to normative of society. Gotcha. to make it more clear what the kind of classist and sexist and racist hierarchies are that typically structure people's experience. Sure. So that we might be able to think more expansively about what kinds of political movements we need, what kinds of policies, and not just what kinds of ideals of human rights and dignity, but instead, how are people being treated? How mm. are people able to live day to day? How are people differentially seen as subjects? Mm. Wow. Do, do you think this is one of the struggles of like the contemporary world we live in a difficulty connecting with like the collective, especially if someone is kind of more spiritual, maybe religious, you know, there, there used to be the option of kind of the institutional church or, or, you know, the, the mosque or the synagogue. 
But but I feel like nowadays, in a more secular sort of context, a lot of people have reasons they don't want to be involved in those kinds of communities. But what you're saying, I think, is so important. How, how do we think about plugging into a collective like in the modern world? Yeah, that's a brilliant question that is really hard to answer because mm. there's no one way to answer it. Sure. The perils of uh, the kinds of institutions uh, of uh, religious observance and tradition, of uh, psychoanalytic observance, of medical knowledge, of scientific knowledge. These are the different institutions that Foucault takes up in his monographs. Okay. In 1961, he writes uh, um, The History of Madness, which is a history of the asylum. Mm. He continues these, um, these sites, like Discipline and Punish, 1975, is on the birth of the prison. But he's looking at how we have all these institutional structures that are the very sites for the subjection of people. And that means that he's very, very skeptical about any kind of institutional structure being able to also be a site of self-formation. Wow. And so that's part of why he's thinking about how do you uh, find ways to counter the, uh, the organizational and institutional, which is inherently conservative because otherwise, how does it last? Right. So it's a very conservative logic. And I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in a metaphysical one. It's much more difficult to figure out how do we think about community and collectives? How do we think about not just self, but also the self as shaped by the other and also responsible to the other? And Mm. with Foucault's uh, late, late work, he comes to say uh, in a late interview, if I was interested in antiquity, it's because uh, for a variety of reasons, modern morality is in the process of breaking down, has broken down. Hmm. And to that must correspond a search for an aesthetics of existence. Wow. By that he means right, modern morality as legislated by certain kinds of institutions, certain ways of life that are seen to be good and bad, good and evil, and that get to legislate who you are and how you can act. And so with this, you know, the question of institutional churches, for example, being a primary site, um, he's thinking directly about Catholicism, which is yes. why I say church. But any kind of institutional structure, religious structure, social structure, educational structure, right? All of these structures have a, a certain kind of force that doesn't allow for people to innovate too much within. Mm. And it's because of the way within which those institutions themselves have also reached a certain kind of uh, breaking point, mm. right? In terms of exposure of so much of the rot that's been at the core, let's say, of the Catholic Church. Uh, there's so much that has now been exposed. And so the kind of disenchantment with a certain traditional religious identity, as you're referring to, in favor of, um, you know, the spiritual but not religious, which my wonderful colleague Bill Parsons talks about a lot. There are certain ways in which thinking about a binary between institutionalism versus individualism reinforces a morality versus that spirituality divide. Right. And I don't think that it's a, it's a binary that really holds. Mm. I think that instead of thinking about how do we have an alternative to what came before, we can think about what is it that we can engage in terms of collective action? Where is it that we find the sites for who we are? Who is it that we're talking to? What are the spaces, right? Is it with the therapist, which is still right, a possible site of right. self-formation, right? With the, with the professor, is it with your colleagues, is it with your fellow activists? 
And it's in those spaces of collective joy, I think, and also mm. collective that there's this possibility of not needing it to be either institutional or individual, okay. but in a kind of collective way of coming to make meaning together, oh make meaning of what has been evacuated of any kind of single narrative, which has been good in a way that recognizes diversity of forms of life, but also really challenging insofar as we're kind of in this existential vacuum. And in the absence of certain meaning, whether it's legislated through the church or certain philosophical forms or even geopolitical forms, what do we do? How do we live? How do we find a reason to get up in the morning and to continue to not only work to become ourselves, but continue to fight for the very people who help us become ourselves and to whom we want to help support in turn. Sure. Maybe first in local collectives, but also really kind of expanding this ethos. That's my hope. How do you expand this ethos so that people see themselves as part of these kind of shifting collectives where we actually see each other as people, as subjects, as rights bearing in practice, mm. instead of the kind of you know, legal Everyone has unity and dignity of rights, which is so necessary as an ideal. And yet when we see the war against women, for example, in terms of um, the attempts to overthrow abortion rights with Roe v. Wade, or more recently with the way that the Kansas decision right, mm-hmm. countered uh, a proposed amendment, we, we see how collectives really matter. Collectives are a part of what can change the ideal into the real. Mm. I love it. Really well said. And, and it, you know, that, 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 that kind of tension between the individual and the collective, and, and we're not talking about like, you know, a traditional institutional form of community, but, but something kind of in between. It's something I think about for, for a lot of the guys that I work with when, when, I, when I'm thinking about kind of masculinity, you know, all the numbers and stats show how disconnected we are and, and, and so much of the mental health struggles that we have that we don't talk about. And so it's, it's something that I don't have an answer to, but but I'm always wondering if people have thoughts on it, is how do we build healthy communities, not just for men, but but I'm thinking of men in particular now, where I think as Jonathan said, we can become aware of our complicity in all the horrible shit that you've been talking about, right? And yet have a place to experience some of the joy that you just mentioned and 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 ways to connect and suffer with others. It's so hard because for the reasons you've been talking about, there are certain social groupings that are, you know, that are seen as reasonable, that are seen as normal. And how do you create new collectives, new ways of being together and in relation where um, these are, these are forms of collectives that have been, you know, just castigated before, right? Mm. The, the ways within which, I mean, you can talk to this much better. I mean, maybe I should ask you to give me an example. <laughs> but but thinking uh, just from my own perspective about the the work of this Cashin, the work of Foucault, how do you live in communities with men? Because mm. they're really talking about men. Right. Cashin one of the founders of Western monasticism. He was extremely influential on the rule of Benedict. And so he's at the heart of Benedictine monasticism. Okay, wow. Monasticism for men. There's a rule for women, but um, there's uh, definitely not only uh, an attention to men, but an exclusion of women. Mm. That I find problematic, but I also yeah. find that 
in the ways in which he's thinking about what are the practices by which we can live together. And one of the things I love so much about Cashin is that he's very realistic when it comes to human psychology. He knows that everyone has struggles. He doesn't pathologize it. Instead, he says, yeah, you're going to get really annoyed by you know, your brother who's singing too loud. Or <laughs> you're also going to you know, feel uh, you know, nocturnal emissions, right? Your penis is going to betray you, and that's okay. And so it's a very different kind of morality than that of Cashin's um, contemporary Augustine. Mm. So Augustine pathologize, right? The erection is the raising up of man against God. And so they'll have very different relationships to sexuality and flesh. And that's part of the the line that you read from Foucault's Christianity, right? What is it to think about the the, the flesh? What is it to think about being human? What is it to think about the body and embodiment and emotion? We are beyond the uh, metric of good and bad, good and evil. And Cashing is really thinking through how to help his fellow brothers live day to day mm. instead of being racked by guilt because they had an erection or because they snuck in an extra biscuit. Right. I mean, these are very mundane day-to-day kinds of struggles, but they felt them very acutely. And so he's helping them try to figure out how do you live? Mm. And one of his central uh, contributions to, to Western philosophies as well was the, uh, the the eight deadly sins or the eight dangerous spirits that he takes over from Evagrius in the Egyptian desert and gets translated by Gregory the Great into the seven deadly sins. So they're not the seven deadly sins with Cashin. Instead, they're the the kinds of spirits that you have to constantly navigate and wrestle with. And one is named Akadia, which is uh, the spirit of listlessness or sloth or torpor mm. correlated with uh, modern massive depressive disorder. Yeah. Because Right? It's this, uh, it's the demon that tells you that life is meaningless mm. or meaningless and that you can't possibly continue in your struggle. And yet for Cashin, it's interesting because he has all these eight demons and it's a progression. So if you've gotten to the sixth demon of Akadia, that means that you've gotten really far. You're doing really well. Wow. And that stage at which this kind of torpor comes in because you're also exhausted. And the best way to overcome it is by being in community with others, mm. even even if uh, you know it brings out some of the worst parts of you in terms of pride and vainglory, being able to recognize that you do need community and it's not just community where you can engage in the acceptable social activities, right, such as sports watching or talking about <laughs> whatever it is, but instead, how do you learn to have a kind of intimacy with others? Mm-hmm. How do you learn to recognize our dependency on each other? And how do you also cultivate the kind of honesty and candor that will allow for those relationships to endure. And this is just to finish this little yeah, narrative. Please, I love it. Foucault ends up going because in his last two years, he's really concerned with this question of how do we learn how to challenge these forms of power? And part of his answer is that we need to cultivate this frankness, this parisia, this ability to tell the truth even when it puts you at risk, risk of losing your life, risk of being illegible as a subject. And his original understanding of Parisia comes from uh, this um, this Epicurean philosopher, Philodemus, who says that Parisia is an opening of the heart. Oh, Parisia wow. is this way that these, again, men, right, living in these Epicurean communities are able to uh, open their heart enough to their fellow community members so that they are gonna risk being vulnerable, they are going to be able to hear critique and advice, not defensively, that they're able to give counsel to others without being vindictive. And it's this entire ethos of relationality 
mm. that end becoming not a collective value at the end of Foucault's life, but instead an individual value, where you have these, these kind of big heroes like Socrates or Diogenes who use Parisia in order to speak truth to power. But Parisia really exhibits itself in this uh, spectrum between this collective where you can cultivate the ability to shape your life and to speak truth to power and to be able to diagnose and see these norms. And then how do you become the kind of person who is able to mobilize that, mm. right? Once you're shaped as well, how do you mobilize this so that you can change the social scripts for others? Oh, that's great. Now, a, a moment ago, I wanted to go back to something you said, you, you, you kind of brought up human sexuality. And as, as I was you know, finishing your, your article last night and, and, and talking to my wife about different things I wanted to bring up. You know, we, we both have a Christian background, but don't necessarily identify in that way anymore. And, and one of the things that we've wrestled with that, that we kind of wanted to ask you was, you know, in, in terms of like your research with Foucault and, and, and Cashin is why did Christianity elevate, you know, quote unquote, sexual sins? above others do you you have any thoughts on that yeah this is exactly what Foucault is interested in okay so then he's uh, writing his history of sexuality series he comes out with his first volume in 1976 and then he is writing the second volume on Christianity because he's trying to figure out how do we end up these confessing subjects Mm. how his two questions are, as he frames them in 1980, right? Why are we compelled to tell the truth about ourselves and which truth? And of course, it's a sexual truth, right? Why does subjectivity and sexuality get so bound up together yes. where it seems like a, a natural, medical, objective reality today? And Foucault is instead reeling us all the way back through this genealogy in order to think about how this logic that seems natural today was actually constructed over time. Mm. And in this book on uh, Christianity, he moves from the early modern period, the confessional manuals where the confessor is supposed to be uh, extracting confessions of sexuality and sin from children, from women, from men, etc. And Foucault moves all the way back to the ancient deserts, to Cashin, to the other figures, in part because he's trying to figure out where do these practices of confession and truth-telling come from? Okay. And it's here that he ends up writing this entire book. It's called Confessions of the Flesh. It's the fourth volume in the history of sexuality. And it had been fully drafted. He had gone through the proofs in the months before his death, but he didn't finish the third section. Okay. And so it was in the it was in the vault from 1984. It was published in 2018, finally. So everyone can access it now. And that this is where Foucault was literally answering your question. Okay. Uh, why do we become not only confessing subjects, but why does the truth of who we are become so routed to sexuality? Uh, Foucault's good friends, or he, he was informed by this uh, historian of late antiquity, Peter Brown, who tells him in 1980 that um, with Auguste in particular, we have this question of how sexuality becomes a seismograph of our subjectivity. Mm. Is to say, why does sub- why does sexuality become basically this uh, you know, th- this tool for evaluating who we are, where we are, how we are, and this is a, a question that Augustine is raising. Okay. So 
Then Foucault's own book, you have these two figures in the fourth, fifth century, Cassian, who's going to give us the confessing mechanisms that show us why we become these animals who want to tell the truth about ourselves. Why do we confess to our shrink, to our doctor, to our professors, right, to the warden? And so this is what Foucault calls veridiction, this mm. truth time. And in tandem, we have Augustine who is thinking about sexuality in relation to subjectivity, how these are completely bound together. This is Augustine who does this. Okay. So this is your direct answer. And how does the relationship between sexuality and subjectivity end up becoming the condition of the juridified subject? And so this is the way in which sexuality and subjectivity become uh, the, the conditions for thinking about the juridical subject and the juridification that you see then these two parallel tracks over Western history converge. The truth-telling and the, the sexual subject end up becoming one and the same within modernity. But there are these two threads that Foucault works out in Confessions of the Flesh. And I think that I mean, he's also tracing out the, the earlier conditions, but it's largely through a certain kind of institutionalization of Catholicism at the end of the fourth century, where we have a certain understanding of what it is to be subject because that enabled better control by the ecclesia to help regulate various uh, various parties, various uh, various communities. It was an act of control, but it was also an act of really interesting exegetical imagination on Augustine's part. Mm. But um, but when Foucault is dealing with this question in antiquity, he moves back to ancient Rome and then ancient Greece because he's trying to figure out alternatives to how subjectivity is construed. And there it's not about subjectivity in relation to sexuality in some modern sense, but instead in relation to pleasure, mm. in relation to practices of pleasure, in relation to practices of self-mastery, where sexuality isn't something that's the true heart of who you are, but instead uh, uh, pleasure and sex acts allow you to participate in the world and shape a way of life that is not routed through the norms of uh, the institution. So it's not a question of morality, which tells you what you can and cannot do, notably sexually, but instead the question of ethics, which is how do you use pleasure? How do you stylize your life in your relation to others? Very masculinist, right? Women are pretty much only seen as vessels, but there's a kind of ethos that interests Foucault that I think that we still can learn from, okay. which is break the relationship between sexuality and subjectivity that is so normal lies today and um, and think instead about a relationality of a pleasure perhaps man Nikki that's amazing can, can we bring it into the modern day real quick and and I just want to know from your perspective I mean drawing from Foucault and all your research w w where do you see like a, a pernicious example of this like subjectivity and sexuality being wedded together even today and and do you see any any, any interesting resistances to that? Any 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 examples or, or just thinking about ways that we could kind of push against that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There are a number of ways that I might answer this. I'll say one that's more biographical for okay. Foucault is that 
he uh, ends up, you know, through his history of sexuality volumes and the force of his own work as an activist in the 70s and 80s, he becomes this figure for gay rights and for queer rights. And even feminist theories are using his own diagnoses of how, especially in the 19th century, you have all these ways in which sexuality becomes pathologized, mm. right? So subjects are pathologized. Women's sexuality is pathologized. Children's sexuality is pathologized. Um, anybody who does not can adhere to a strict binary of male or female, so the gender exclusion that happens in the 19th century. And so because Foucault is so good at diagnosing these, he becomes this figure that David Halperin calls Saint Foucault. That's the name of his book. And, um, and Foucault's uh, not only diagnosis of the 19th century, but also the ways in which he's saying that this is a contingent, not a necessary way of thinking about yourself, does contribute to the, the forms of, um, of activism and the fight for gay rights, the fight that uh, has continued through legislation up and through uh, you know, 2013, gay marriage. I mean, you have uh, not only the social and cultural movements and the possibilities that Foucault helped open up, but also the the legal and the juridical ways in which certain people's rights are now seen as mm. just as valid, as equal, and as protected. Mm. So when we're thinking about this question of how subjectivity and sexuality are connected together, I think one of the, the main fights is how do you think about the ways in which subjectivity and sexuality gets routed together in order to exclude people okay. from having economic rights, from having political protection, from having the uh, um, ability to be in a workplace without discrimination. I mean, it, like so many of the issues at the heart of gay rights, of queer rights, of women's rights, uh, transgender rights that are so much more visible today, thankfully. Like these are all places where one is excluded on the basis of one's sexuality. And that's the problem. Okay. Whenever it's site of exclusion and whenever it's going to preclude what we take to be equal rights from actually being put into practice. And that's where the abortion question comes back, I think, in force. Because it's Yeah, can you it, say more about that? Yeah. So uh, for example, in the the recent let's see, the recent um uh let's see, the Kansas decision at the beginning of uh this month, I forget what month we're in, but the Kansans <laughs> right, uh, came out to vote in droves. Uh, there was a huge percentage of increase in people who had uh, you know, made it to the polls, notably women, and they were there in part to, uh, well, vote on a certain constitutional amendment that the, uh, the state of Kansas was putting forth. And um, it was called, uh, um, let's see, I think it was value them both. So it was uh, it was an amendment to uh, basically strike all abortion rights in Kansas. This, of course, was enabled by the uh, um, the, the Supreme Court overturning of uh, 1973 Roe versus Wade, which then led the jurisdiction up to individual states. So Kansas already had extreme restrictions on abortion. They only had four service-providing centers. This is, of course, the place where um, uh, George Tiller was murdered. And right, it's not that this is a bastion of, uh, of pro-abortion rights. Right. But what's interesting within this uh, in this fight is that the Supreme Court of Kansas was making the case on the basis of respecting personal autonomy. If you're not going to respect the personal autonomy, which includes for women, the ability to have some kind of self-determination, to have the ability to make decisions about their own bodies, their own health, their own families, their own futures, 
then you're not actually reading the U.S. Constitution and its promise to, to have equal rights and dignity for all. Mm. And so it's a question of um, who counts as a subject. And the question of who counts as a subject here in terms of a woman having the right to self-determine right, is one which is simply trying to create a baseline of uh, connection between the theory of universal rights and the practice of who actually gets to enjoy those practices. By contrast, you have the criminalization of women on the other hand, you have the criminalization of, uh, of gay people on practices. I mean, anti-sodomy laws that have right. been and continue to go on all over the world. Like right? there's so much legislation that criminalizes uh, uh, certain forms of sexuality. And this is where the, the battle between the human rights as a universal versus uh, the uh, criminalization on the basis of sexuality needs to be seen and exposed for mm. what it is, which is a problem. Yeah. Wow. Drop the mic. <laughs> that is some powerful stuff. I'm going to figure this out because I'm really desperate. Yeah. Like I spent two months in Paris over the summer and I was able to kind of suspend the, the tears in my mind every day. But then I came back and wrote this paper on autonomy and thinking about personal autonomy. Uh, Foucault is very anti-autonomy as a subject, but the, the ways in which personal autonomy becomes a way to recognize the rights of uh, women, trans people, uh, queer people, uh, I think that this is where we can recuperate some of the force of some of the philosophical language that's typically used to protect certain kinds of masculinist subjects. Okay. Can, can you can you say more about that? Can you unravel that a little bit? Because that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, the, the way within which the philosophy of the subject, which is to say the subject who is the bearer of human rights, is oftentimes traced back to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, Mm. where in uh, the, the 1780s in particular, he's writing a series of texts which define human being in relation to their capacity to reason and the autonomy of their will, which means that they can, uh, they can choose to act in ways that should be able to be universalizable for others. Okay. So it's this very heady philosophical thing, but it ends up creating the ways that people think about the human being and the human subject in modern politics vis-a-vis -vis the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, both the original and also the ones for children and indigenous people, like the various uh, iterations that the United Nations has been putting out. It's very much predicated on the language of human dignity and equality that have been set up by Kant and other Enlightenment sure. philosophers. The question then is, how does a certain kind of a subject uh, get the ability to practice what these rights seem to be um, seem to be given in a universal sense. And by that I mean who is the subject for the philosopher of Kant of even the 1950s? Uh, I mean it's going to be uh, a an affluent or at least very privileged white male subject right. whose very logic is going to be routed in and through contexts where imperialism and colonialism is literally uh, engaging the exploitation of countless people domestically as well as through the horrors of transatlantic slave trade. Like you literally have these contexts of exploitation while you have the emergence of this seemingly glorious and humanizing form of thinking about the human. Mm. So there's that, that struggle, right? There's that reality there. And what I'm talking about in terms of how the subject ends up becoming 
kind of overly identified with the very people who are able to theorize it. So with Kant, for example, there is this way within which the imagination that he's able to engage, right? his very episteme in Foucault's language, the ways in which he's able to think about what it is to be human are going to be defined by the masculine's horizon of his own experience. Got you. Right. So then how do we think then about over time, who counts as a subject, not just in some kind of abstract way, but whose rights are being seen and protected? How do we think about what it is to be human, not just in terms of rationality, but also as thinking about the abilities for embodiment and for the emotions and desires to be a constitutive part of not only what it is to be human, but what it is to be an ethical agent. Mm. So this is really heady and abstract. No, but this is good. <laughs> the key movements here that I think need to be interrogated is not separate philosophically and politically, but gotcha. instead, right, we need to kind of expose the, the common basis of, uh, of who counts as a subject that's common to both. Mm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I love that. You know, because it was kind of heady, do, do, you, do you see any ways to kind of talk about it practically? I mean, not, not that we need to reduce things to the practical, but w w what are ways that, you know, even some of my listeners could think about what you're saying and, and, and you know, do things differently and, and engage in a different way of being in the world? Yeah, I mean, this is a part of the collectivities that we've been talking about. Okay. How do we learn how to see people in their differences and different experiences and learn how to both empathize and also to, I don't know, to, to continue critiquing and challenging forms of oppression or injustice when we see it. And I think that's where my recommendation would lie. Go out and vote. Vote in ways that recognize that certain policies are going to you know, reinforce the discrimination of so many of the people that you might also be friends with or care about. Uh, in terms of workplace scenarios, the, the kind of uh, income uh, gap that we still have between men and women, uh, not to mention the kinds of trans exclusion that happens in your everyday workplace, like call these things out in ways. I mm. think. Uh, uh, the academic sphere, who is being cited? How many scholars are you citing that, you know, this is why I feel guilty myself, right, are the kind of standard uh, subject of philosophy, which is to say privileged, uh, um, privileged, usually white men, right, from a European context in the last couple hundred years. Uh, and who else is doing the work? find people doing the work. Uh, it's not just about representation. It's because people are able to think through these questions differently because all of our experiences have been shaped in ways that allow us to uh, to question differently, to, to expose different problems. And so really then it comes down to a common practice of listening, which is really hard mm. because it's this dialect between listening and acting. And I don't have answers. This is what I'm hoping to keep working on over the next couple of years. Okay. Uh, like the Foucault book is really, or books right now, they're trying to unpack what he's up to, how he comes to ethics. Because the, the next big project for me is how do you think about what are ethics today? What kinds of ethics are possible? How can I better address the very questions that you're raising today? And that might be not only of, of interest to your own listeners, but also I think become really urgent for how we're thinking through our own lives as well as our lives together. Okay. 
No, that's really good. So what's what's coming up for me? It's maybe bringing together some of your work with Cassian and Foucault, and then and then other things. If if, if we're thinking about, let's say, like a, a modern person, do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how they can? kind of do a better job of like listening to themselves doing kind of that internal self-examination and and yeah what what might that look like and 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 what what could that do for people if 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 they sort of looked within and and, and thought about it that way well this is certainly your metier because <laughs> it's literally the the site of self-examination that is at the heart of what it is to uh wrestle with uh, being human day to day, right? How do you constantly think about what it is that challenges you? The danger, I think, in that kind of self-examination is that if you turn too much inwards without having interlocutors, without having some kind of guides, friends, people that you hold yourself in relation to and accountable to, it ends up spiraling. And this is what Mm. we've seen the, the pandemic, right? The kind of isolation that was imposed uh, through COVID uh, for very good public health measures also meant that everyone, everyone was living a monastic existence, turning their thoughts inwards, and that kind of introspection can spiral out of control. This is one of the lessons that we get from Cashin, right? Yes. With the demon. Yeah. Too much introspection, right? Trying to figure it out intellectually will only get you so far. And sometimes it will get you into the doldrums. Mm. This is why the kind of promise that passion comes up with that Foucault is tending towards is how do you have a kind of integration between your bodily practices, the affective practices and the reflective. Oh, so it's good. Already, right. Like how, how is it that you're using your body? How are you engaging in, uh, in your body day to day? Like I'm always a huge, uh, uh advocate for, uh, physical exercise, uh, just feeling like you're in your body. I was a ballerina growing up and continue to, to dance when I can. And there's a way of living in my body that gets me out of my head, even as I'm deeply also in this space of, uh, of reflection. So there's the, the bodily practices, the emotional practices that I think are really important to cash in. This is where- Yeah, could you speak you, to that, uh, the affective side? I love that. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much to say about the affective, but but one I'll talk about is the kind of cultivation of certain emotions. What is okay. it to read an amazing novel or to, to watch a film or to have a really meaningful conversation where you go through the different emotions that are a part of what it is to be human, which means that you're not just in your head, right? The emotions are also physiological. They're physiological, right. they're psychological. And they're they're catalyzed by the affects of others taking them in, being shaped by them, in transporting yourself into a, a different experience of the world or a different experience of a different world. And so the, the way that Passion talks about this is through scriptural recitation. He talks about the Psalms and how the Psalter mm. in uh, antiquity was seen to be this, this book that contains all the human emotions. And so you can basically take this as a primer for learning how to be human on the basis of all the emotions that you can cultivate and navigate and, uh, and include in the repertoire, right? It's not good to not have any sadness. It's not good to only have joy, right? right? It's, it's a spectrum that, that you can awaken and, um, 
and integrate with the bodily. And then the reflective, the, the practices of self-examination, I think are deeply necessary, right? Whether it's through uh, talking to a therapist or reflecting on your day as the Stoics did, whether it's thinking about where you're coming from and the certain struggles that you've had, as well as a certain sense of affirmation of where you want to go. There are certain exercises of memory as well as, um, well, the kind of amorfati exercises, which is to kind of cultivate a presence and an acceptance, sure. which uh, also correlates with a lot of Buddhist practice and teachings. Sure. So all to say that it, the reflective and introspective, I think, is so important. The affective and the emotional cultivation is so important. And the bodily, both training and engagement, they're so important as the th- as three different sites of, uh, of subjectivity. And yet they need to be integrated in order to not just work your body to the ground or just have feelings and be paralyzed or have so much thought that you spiral out of who you are and into a kind of despair. Mm. And so it's really about the integration of these practices. How do you bring them together day to day? How do you think about what it is that constitutes your own life? And how do you do this in ways that also hook up to communities of care? Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I really like that. I think that you might appreciate too something that I'll say that's more personal about the Cashin book, okay. which is the ways in which I'm thinking about daily formation, right? How do we shape ourselves when we can't trust our will, when right. we can't trust right, our minds to be an anchor? Uh, as right, somebody who's experienced a mental illness myself, but also been able to, to, to navigate it enough to, to forge ways of life, you know, there's always ups and downs. <laughs> sure. But, uh, Wait, so you have it all figured out? <laughs> oh, totally. my book. Why my purchases? <laughs> but I, I wrote this book because I was really trying to figure out what is it that I needed in order to be able to navigate day to day. And I wrote it for my my dear friend, uh, my dearest from college, who had he was a. Uh, uh, just a brilliant writer and so capable of extreme joy and extreme despair. Mm. And we really experienced the world in so many ways that made the world home, right? that kind of relationality. Um, but also kind of felt the, the lows as well. Yeah. And so he, when he committed suicide in 2011, mm. there was this just really desperate sense that I had of like, what would I tell him? Wow. Like, what is it that I wish that I could have, uh, helped him work through what is it that I needed to break down because Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't working, right? He didn't have a higher power. High modernism as literature didn't cut it. And so the question is how do you live a life when you don't have that traditional sense of morality or tradition in the religious sense that we were talking about earlier? How do you live in the world when what you're doing and who you are tapes against who the world tells you to be? And how do you do this with a sense of, taking day to day the steps knowing that it's going to be an ongoing sense of cultivation and progress and so I wrote this for Ryan because I was you know in such a state of not only mourning and grief but also just mystified that I'm here and he's not Mm. and this is why the, the the question of who we are as not rational beings or voluntary beings, but instead as embodied, as effective, and as reflective in relation to others is so important to me. And I suspect, at least, that these are the kinds of questions and 
ethical needs that motivated both Cashin and Foucault. Okay. Both of them clearly struggled with how to live day to day, but also found these ways, these sites of, uh, of formation that I only wish that I had done a better job of, of engaging with my own beloveds. Mm. Wow. Okay, I want to ask you a question, and, and it, it may not necessarily be your area of expertise, but but I'm just curious if you could speak to it. But if you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. We can kind of scratch it. But um, I, I've noticed in the last couple of years, there's been like a resurgence, whether it's online with like Stoic philosophy or or a figure like Jordan Peterson that I feel very conflicted about, where these like white men, for the most part, are, are trying to go back to kind of ancient philosophy, ancient spiritual traditions, and, and bring them into the present day to kind of address masculinity. And in some ways, I find it deeply problematic, but it's stuff that clients bring up all the time. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any sort of thoughts around that. I know that's a big question. It's a little vague, but I wanted to see if something comes up for you. Yeah, so many things, in fact. Okay. Please, please speak to me. <laughs> in fact, this interview, I was actually watching Jordan Peterson last night <laughs> because of this concern, okay. because he does speak to something. Yes. Right, that's me today, which is this question of how to live. Right, so there is this way in which he's not only able to kind of break things down in a way that people resonate with, but also his lack of any kind of nuance and his mm. willingness to just frame us and them, good and evil, to frame the sense of disenfranchisement, right? To amplify the sense of people's own alienation. He's such a mastermind at doing that, that yeah. it becomes uh, um, it becomes really necessary to at least figure out what's appealing, especially when it comes to his appeal to uh, younger white men who feel like they have been stripped of something that they were owed. Yes. Right. And I think that this, this is a danger in part because it covers over the actual uh, forces of economic and political crisis that are operating. Mm. And it's not because that women can have abortions or because trans people get to you know occupy the same workspace. Right. It's not that this is a competition between individuals. Instead, it's a deep systemic crisis that we are being deflected from. And this is what I'll also say about the the return to uh, certain stoic practices and the ways in which cure the self is um, is seen as a daily practice. On the one hand, I think this is amazing okay. because this is what Foucault is up to. He's trying to figure out new ways of life. I think that these are ways of thinking through daily practices of the affective bodily and interrelational that are just deeply moving and compelling. Okay. Now, two problems here. One, we can't just recuperate practices from the past and reinsert them in the present. Our mm. context different and also the history let's say within Nazi, Nazi Germany of wanting to have this kind of return to classical ideals ends up having a very totalitarian cast because mm. it then reinforces certain kinds of norms and here we see again we have a Marcus Aurelius an emperor we have Seneca we have all these figures who are already the elites of society yeah. to the elites and listening to what the elites get to do without recognizing what the broader context and conditions were for the exclusion of so many is a, a very dangerous way of romanticizing and glamorizing a certain past while reinforcing some sense of your own destiny in the present. So that's uh, my, my first critique. I love my it. Second, 
is the neoliberal one, which is where the engagement in these practices of self-care threaten to, again, blind us to the structural conditions that make us so desperate to care for ourselves, right? Like there's a, there's a systemic crisis. And if we simply content ourselves with shaping ourselves and being okay as individuals, then that allows for those very structures to continue to degenerate and to continue to dominate and oppress and make the possibilities for all people, mm. the people who Peterson appeals to, people who he does not appeal to. Right. Uh, like both of us are in a similar bag, although the, the structures of power differentially treat us on the basis of our race in particular in this country, our gender, our class, our ability, our sexuality. And so the, the, the language of self-care is both one that I see great potential for because we can think about our daily lives. But if we don't do that with a recognition of uh, the structures of power that reinforce our own sense of responsibility to ourselves at the exclusion of recognizing how these are the structures that are the problem and that mm. we need to collectively so shape our lives, but do it collectively, mobilize action and be aware that um, treating yourself or caring for yourself in this uh, individualist way is going to run out and you just constantly then need to keep consuming the next step, the next stage, the, the next uh, certificate, whatever it might be. And so those are, those are two of the primary dangers that I think need to be taken into account despite the other ethical possibilities for the thought experiments they help us think through as well. It's really well said. You know, one of the things that comes up for me is, you know, one of the things that I can even benefit from like stoic philosophy, I bring it up in therapy is the idea, you know, that there's some things that are out of your control and there's some things that are in your control. But as you were talking, I could see how that maxim could be used as a, as a way to not, think about larger systems and things that we could do collectively to try to change those things. And so it almost reinforces some of that. And uh, yeah, that doesn't sound very good. Exactly. Right. And it's such a problem because there are those two sides, the existential side where we do have to understand that we are conditioned subjects and that we cannot control things. Right. And yet on the other side, if you allow yourself that kind of um, escapism or even nihilism, then that means that we allow the structures to continue, which is uh, only going to make things worse for individuals as well as collectives. Yes. When you, when you said a moment ago that we have to be careful to understand our contemporary context, that we can't just take an ancient practice and bring it into the present, do you have an example of maybe a person or a community that's tried that and it's been kind of disastrous or, or is there something that comes to mind for that? Oh, that's so interesting. I don't have an example uh, of uh, a direct retrieval. Okay. Uh, one could argue that anybody who's engaging in, uh, in Cashin's practices as a Benedictine monk over the last 1600 years, yeah. every single day is already engaging that practice, but that's one that's continuous. Mm. Uh, continuous and tradition building and has its own dangers, no doubt. But one of uh, one of retrieval, um, I don't have an example of that, but I will talk about one of uh, the mechanisms, the practices. Okay. And so about uh, United States uh, fasting culture, dieting culture, mm. especially since, um, since the 70s and 80s and how this corresponds to 
both a certain kind of Christian identity, but then also a certain, um, you know, capitalist identity. And it's that kind of uh, intersection that really interests me. Because what is what has been taken up? Well, a set of um, fasting procedures that we can see in Cashton's asceticism, for example, in the desert. Right. Uh, fasting is you know, central to so many forms of asceticism, whether it's you know, Buddha, right, Siddhartha in, uh, in the 5th century BCE, whether it is uh, Cash in the 4th century, 5th century CE. You have uh, this ascesis, this training in and through the uh, deliberate um, moderation or stylization of what you're consuming. This is what we can see taken up in um, certain movements. I think like the GLOW movement, uh, Marie Griffiths talks about this very compellingly within the American uh, religious circles uh, of the 20th century. And it's this way of thinking about your weight as being tied to your religious identity and basically you know, fasting for Jesus. Mm. And the correlation between looking a certain way and kind of evacuation of excess as correlating with a... Uh, a kind of identity that you want to to adhere to. We can see a similar kind of movement in uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow group movement, right? The kind of evacuation as a way of uh, forming yourself as a certain kind of subject. Okay. Of course, you also see the props of all the things that you need to buy, the cleanses, the, uh, the, the different material supports, and of course, you have to go to her fancy conferences. So there are ways within which you can take up a practice like... Um, uh, like fasting or a stylized dietary regime, see how in the different contexts they have very different results and effects, and they participate in different kinds of economies. Whether it's supporting one of Paltrow and certain forms of uh, of a neoliberal capitalism, whether it's reinforcing, as Marie Griffith writes about, a certain identity as Christian and as an ideal Christian in the 20th century, especially as a woman, where being marked as a woman um, also carries different weight. And then, fourth century, you have these dietary practices uh, signifying something else. Yet the phenomenology of it, yeah. what is the body? Doing? I mean, like there there are interesting continuities there. Mm. Uh, Logan writes this wonderful piece in the jar called the lean closet that okay. I think did a great job of itemizing this. Okay. So that's exactly a retrieval of a traditional practice, but it is a retrieval of a certain kind of practice and showing how differently it gets modulated depending on what the context is at hand. Got you. Okay. Nikki, would you mind if I asked you kind of one last question, unless there's something sure. else you want to say? Um, so maybe a little bit of a thought experiment and I'm going to include myself in this circle. If, if, if I had a group of, you know, pretty privileged, you know, white American males who were trying to honestly look at themselves and, and, and try to take steps forwards in, in some positive directions in ways that you've been talking, is there one thing that you would tell them that they need to wrestle with that would be sort of like a challenge, ways that they're complicit in, 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 in some of the kind of systems of oppression? And then what would be one thing you would encourage them to do differently or to sort of think about or wrestle with as they're constructing a healthier self? I'd say you're not alone. We're all complicit. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, like you've been oppressed. Uh, you've mm. been told the problem. No, like we're it's the structures themselves. It's not the individuals. Mm. Uh, it's 
also not just, you know, a few bad apples, like Jeff says, and like the, the, the challenge to recognize how we're all complicit within the very logics of these systems means that we can work together. Okay. I like that. And the distinctive privileges that we each have in our own experiences and how recognizing that our own experience is not that of other people. You can't just universalize your own experience and expect that others will um, have been treated the same, that everyone will be thinking in a similar way. And instead, I think this is where the, like the genuine listening to others is not a practice of uh, learning how to be passive. Instead, it's an active process mm. of taking interest in others, taking interest in others experiences it, the way that they see the world, the ways within which we can identify how different kinds of privilege have led to different forms of life and how working together we can better empathize with and see new possibilities. Um, I think that the, the challenge is uh, practically and politically are manifold. So I don't have any good advice for what we should all do together, but sure. I think that in of recognizing that if we don't recognize who we are, where we come from, the privileges that we have, and the narrowness of our own experience, then we can't truly come to take interest in others and empathize and build collectives in ways that allow us to be vulnerable. It's that parisia, the opening of the heart. How can we do that with others, even when we feel like we are being judged or seen in ways that are unfair? push through, recognize these structures, recognize the various hierarchies that make it so much more difficult for certain people in this country mm. to be seen and valued and live. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. And I, I like the way you're describing Parisia as the opening of the heart. I mean, if I can put it this way, in my limited experience working with a lot of males who would probably be labeled sort of toxic, at least in the beginning, it's, it's really a closing of the heart. That that's what sort of got them in trouble in a lot of ways and, and the situation they're in. And so thinking about it in terms of the opening of the heart and just listening, starting with listening to themselves and others as, as basic as that seems, I think is so powerful. It's that question of how do you have empathy for yourself without pitying yourself? Wow. Because the empathy is something that we can extend to all and that has been shut off so often with uh, the toxic masculinity that you're describing. But then how do you not just reinforce that sense of pity, right? Self-pity yes. that yes. certain people are able to amplify yes. and because emotions are so flexible. It's much more difficult to cultivate that critical empathy and care towards other and self. Mm. That's so much at the heart of what Simon Weil, a French philosopher in the mid-century, has to say, and I think that's what we can learn yeah. from each other about how to put into practice. Sure. Yeah, you know, there's there's like a harshness to Jordan Peterson and others, even in like modern stoicism, where you have to be so rigorous with yourself that what I end up seeing in therapy is a lot of relapse and just, you know, almost a self-hatred that comes out of that. I, I get the reason why they want to be rigorous and and they want to sort of work on things, but I think they take it to a to a degree that is not very healthy. And then it's reinscribing the very norms and values that they've been given, wow. which is can antithetical to the ethical possibility of uh, self shaping in relation to others yes. as a challenge to dominant norms. Mm. So it, it's it's uh, it's rigorous, but rigor doesn't mean that it um, has to be one of renunciation. Okay. 
one of cultivation. Oh man, that's so good. Okay. So is there anything about your, your research on Foucault or Cassian or anything else that you've kind of worked on that you feel like you'd want to talk about, you'd want to challenge someone with? Oh, I don't know. I think read the texts, read the text, read some texts, read some people who've been wrestling with these questions for a long time. Uh, I'm, I I do a lot of um, teaching, especially undergraduate seminars on mental health and the history of uh, demonology and depression as these, uh, as these parallel tracks within uh, Western philosophies. Oh, that sounds fascinating. The more that we can read texts from different times and places and see how they're continuous, we can both have a sense of um, what is common in human experience over time. Yeah. Right? Like struggle, there's always community, there's, there are some basic needs, but also what is different and how can we learn from people who are living in different ways of life? Mm. So how do we learn to be uh, empathetic through a kind of critical distance, perhaps, whether it's taking up you know, a text that is new, a different way of life, a different human being that you can come to um, to be in relation to. I think that there's uh, just that primary question of how do you think about humans, not in an abstract, but extend the kind of care to others and to yourself that we at least claim in theory is so important. Yeah, that's good. So if anyone wants to connect with you, they want to find out more about your research, want to find you online, where, where can they go to reach you? I have a website, NikkiClements.com, okay. and then various little sites. I've been running a lot of Foucault seminars and things over the years, uh, and so I have a Twitter now. I'm not very good. <laughs> I'll be posting a lot more. Okay. And, uh, and it's actually been very funny during the pandemic to have access to social media and the need to promote some wonderful speakers that I was engaging because um, I've met so many more people now in this broader Foucault community internationally that uh, that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And so there is something that can be socially connective in these uh, in these virtual spaces, but um, not at the exclusion of in-person, intimate connection. Okay, yeah. Okay, so uh, as I was saying at the beginning, um, if you'd be open to it, you know, at some point, my wife and I would love to take you and your partner out to dinner, drinks, and and just continue the conversation, just continue to talk more about some of these awesome realities. And maybe, and maybe you'll sign your book for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me one thing. Why Zeno for you? Why Zeno? Hmm? Zeno. Uh, he's above your head. Oh, got you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I do enjoy what I would call kind of a healthy stoicism. Um, that that's that's not really kind of the modern. I call it like bro stoicism. That's that's developed. I, I like going. Probably. Yeah, I, I I think there's some really interesting resources within stoicism. Um, and and one of the therapeutic modalities that I utilize, cognitive behavioral therapy. Some some of the roots of that go back to the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so um, the, the, the quote is actually something that's pretty important to me. It's, it's something like happiness is no small thing, but you know, it kind of starts by taking that small step forward. So just encouraging clients, encouraging my, my men that, you know, in order to care for the self and move forward, you, you kind of have to take that first step. 
and also know that there is no fixed goal that you need to arrive at because you never will according to his very theory of time. I love that. Yes. That is liberating to me. So one thing I'll say in conclusion, because I think you'll like this, at the very end of his life, Foucault is not only working on the histories of sexuality two, three, which treat the ancient Greeks and the Romans, so so much on the Stoic philosophers, and those are about sexual ethics. But he was also writing this book called uh, Le Gouvernement de Soi des Autres, The Government of Self and Others, and it's a book completely on the first, second centuries of the Roman Empire, and it's about the Stoic practices, the Epicurean practices, the Pythagorean practices wow. that are able to shape a way of life. This is where this is not even about sex as such. This is about ancient ethics as an art of living, as a care of the self. And Foucault has an entire, he has three different boxes. And he told his partner, Daniel Defer, that this book was ready to be edited. And so this is the last secret volume that Foucault that I've only accessed and then transcribed from the archives. But this is an ongoing question for him of how do we live? And I think that his affection for the Stoics and um, and the Cynics in particular is uh, running parallel to some of the urgency that you've been describing. Mm. So I hope that at some point we can continue the uh, the investigation into what Foucault was up to, because I think that he's doing this in a way that also connects us to ourselves and others in wow. that dialogue wow. that I hope you would find interesting. Oh my gosh, well. I'm, I'm like clapping my hands. I'm getting so excited. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so I, I do ask every guest to kind of end with the statement, continue the conversation, j- just as a way to encourage people to keep on thinking about these ideas and maybe put them into practice. So can you end with that phrase, continue the conversation? We shall continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at com, or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, Katie Teen and familycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.